team. Welcome to episode 94 of Transition Talk, where we talk about the dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. For dental practice owners, maintaining and increasing your practice's value is always something that's on your mind. And while cash flow is a key element of this, the practice assets also play a big role in your overall value to both the value and the buyer. In this episode, we'll dive into those assets more specifically, and we're going to discuss goodwill, what it is, why it matters, how it impacts the practice value, what to know as a buyer and seller when transitioning goodwill. We're going to dive into all the details, but before we do that, Mr. Loretto, it hey. has been so long. It has. You've been recording. I've been recording, but Not our, little, our little duo has been <laughs> off, and uh, it's good to see you. You too. Yes. What have you been up to? Uh, you know, I went to Europe and do a little empty nester thing, so I went to Spain and had a good time. Oh, good. Yes, and so uh, that's what you do when the kids are out of the house. Now, your kids... Mm-hmm are not out of the house. We are not out of the house. You are back in the full swing of things. And uh, so what are the girls up to? What sports, activities? What's happening in the the Ratcliffe household? So two things. I've had the birthday week. My kids share a birthday, if I've never shared that on this podcast. So they both turned 13 and 8. Oh, my goodness. So I have entered my teenage era. We had a Taylor Swift-themed birthday, of course, (laughs) for her. And um, we're back in full swing of sports. My youngest plays soccer, so we have a lot of soccer. But my oldest plays volleyball and cheer. Okay. So no hard feelings, no judgment for other cheer moms. It is my first foray there. And... um, painful. Look, let me give you some observations. Just see, my kids did the soccer, they did the volleyball, they did the football, they did everything. And I had this like moment. I don't know what it was, one of the kids' senior years, and I'm watching the cheer team. And it never dawned on me the amount of effort from their practice standpoint. And then they get two minutes of like maybe a little bit of fame during halftime. So as a parent, you have to go to be there that whole time for the football game, for the basketball game, for whatever in their performance, for the two minutes. Yeah. And that is what I also did not understand. I did not understand. (laughs) You're just trying to support your daughter. Like the first time she was like 6.45 a.m. cheer twice a week. And I was like, oh, that's special. Okay, well, I'll go to the gym, I guess, after I drop you off. And then I went to my first seventh grade football game, and it was two hours long and it was raining and I was like this is not fun and I fully support all of you out there who have middle school boys and you're watching them and like they love it and like I love it for them and for you and I love it for my daughter who loves to cheer but I do not love seventh grade football no it is a a lot of throwing and a lot of timeouts and a lot of unnecessary time that I feel like you need to pick it up yes no I agree I I am gonna pray for your entire household you know that Mm. you get through this and you guys you know kind of figure this out and neither of my children I mean they love it and I will continue to support them Bryn's pretty good at soccer so we'll see how she evolves there but like Lila's not going to go to like college on a scholarship for right, cheer or right, volleyball. And right. so I'm like, okay, like at certain point, like what are we doing? But then I'm like, you have to be involved in something. So I'm really like yeah. conflicting messages yeah. for her. She's going to win the most beautiful award. You know, she, she's super she's cute. She's awesome. super cute. And yeah. she loves it. And, you know, all those seventh yeah. grade girls are like all their like camaraderie. And like, yeah. it, so yeah. she's loving it. So I'm loving it for her. But man, I feel like I am earning a lot of goodwill. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that transition. <laughs> I do. As what a is this episode titled? You know. 
transitioning goodwill. All right. Well, let's uh, get into the goodwill of the <laughs> dentist. Let's do it. So goodwill is something that everyone knows, and at least in this space, everyone knows that term and we know it adds value to a practice, but like what actually is it? And that's what we're going to try to define in a few different ways throughout our time together today. First, before we dive into it, and I want you to give us some examples of goodwill from a numbers perspective, because I think it's important we understand the numbers piece always and then kind of dive into like the softer pieces of it. But I think to start, you have to understand tangible versus intangible, right? And that's exactly what it sounds like. Tangible is what we can touch, right? So fixed assets, so equipment, supplies, the furniture, the computers, the file cabinets, the chairs in the waiting room, those are all your tangible assets. Intangible things are things that have value outside of their like physical presence, right? So we're talking patient records. Yes, there's an actual chart that's a patient record if you have paper charts, but it's more about the content in them, the relationship, the history you have with that person, non-competes, and then goodwill, which is made up of this collection of things, including both the profitability of the business, your process, a seller's reputation, the brand, and we'll kind of go through a, a full list of those things, but it's kind of like everything else that makes up that value, right? If I go in and I say, hey, you know, if I'm just looking at the equipment of a practice and it's 10 years old, we all know that equipment doesn't have a great market value, right? We're not getting a ton if we just go try to sell the equipment as it is. But what makes up your practice is all of those things combined that are working in tandem to kind of create your practice. And so when we say tangible versus intangible, that is what we're talking about. And goodwill lives in that intangible bucket. So numbers, man, give me some examples and let's talk about how this actually impacts a buyer and seller in a transition in that breakout. So I love it because you've seen a thousand, I've seen a thousand buyers. Tell me about this practice. What do you think I should buy? Tell me about this practice. What do you think the value is? Out of a thousand, less than one, zero have ever said, well, I have a practice and I believe that the asset allocation should be 90% or this doctor, <laughs> million dollar practice, his allocation and her allocation is 8713. And I just feel that it's the practice is good, but the allocation is horrendous, right? This conversation never happens. This conversation is way into the details. This is like at the 11th hour, the attorneys, the accountant, the broker is somehow putting together these last minute numbers. And now all of a sudden the buyer or the seller feels like this needs to be this, let's argue about this and what is this, and that's not reasonable and that's not fair. So understand this is in the weeds, but it is so important not to let this little detail, you know, to make rash decisions until you fully understand it. So let's just talk financially, just financially, what is this? And let's talk about it from the buyer's perspective. So I'm a numbers guy. Let's use big, round, giant numbers, and you can subtract these to maybe or increases for your practice transition. So this is a million dollar purchase. It is very common to see 80% of that million dollars or 800,000 be allocated to goodwill and the other 20% to be allocated towards those tangible assets. So from a tax perspective, as a buyer, what I want you to understand is you're going to get a $1 million deduction for this entire purchase. So you're going to deduct it, okay? If it's 83 or 17 or if it's 70, 30 on this allocation, you're going to deduct the entire thing. Now, what we want to think about too is there's going to be a portion in this case, the goodwill, and that's the intangible that Christy talked about, that is going to be depreciated over a 15-year period. So if I took $800,000, I'm literally just taking that number divided by 15, and that's the number I'm going, to, I'm going to write off on my tax return. Now, one of the largest, biggest, most horrific decisions that a buyer can make, so listen up and make sure that this is a rewind, let me hear that one more time, part of the episode. 
If you take, in this example, that $200,000, a million-dollar valuation, 800 goes to the intangible, the 200 is a tangible, you will have an election to take all of it, all $200,000 in that example, and write it off that entire year. That's utilizing the 179 deduction. In the example of you close in September, and you're now going to be an owner October, November, December, and maybe you worked as an associate for the first nine months, you made $100,000 can literally show you how that you can have your first year tax return and pay zero taxes. And that may sound amazing, but that would actually be the worst decision that you can make. Because I already know if I'm looking at this million dollar practice or million two probably collection practice that's making 500, asking questions like what your spousal income is and you know he or she's making 100,000. I know the future you're going to make over 600. I know your taxes are going to be way more important that following year. So what I want you to do is big picture to understand is the 80, 85, 15, 80, 20, 70, 30, you're going to get a 100% tax deduction. That's what you need to know. And then I want you to work with your accountant and figure out what is the best strategy now, one year's, five years, seven years, kind of going into what makes the most sense for me as I depreciate this. Now, from a seller, the great news is if this is 80%, that 80%, the $800,000, you're going to get taxed at capital gains rate. Sellers are usually a bit, little bit more, I would say, understanding of the tax game because they've been in this process. So for them, the more that we can put towards the goodwill or the intangible, the better. So they like that. So this is the point in time where maybe we're working with the buyers and sellers. It's okay if I give up and it goes down to 83 or 85% of the goodwill. It's okay because buyers, I really want us to focus in if the thing makes sense, then let's purchase it. So from a financial perspective, buyers, you're going to get the 100% tax deduction for the entire thing. From a seller's perspective, you know, the more that's allocated to goodwill within reason, the better for you because the tangible assets, the hard assets that Chrissy talked about, the chairs, the furniture, equipment, those are all going to be taxed at the ordinary income rate, which you know currently the highest number is at 37% on the federal level. So big picture, always look at it from a financial perspective. Know what you're giving up. Not you know, Let's don't negotiate the deal to where we're all hating each other because you're giving up one percentage points here or there. And again, you're going to be writing the whole thing off. So just always take a big step, big picture. I think that's what we're really good at is taking a step back and say this this is not a point that we need to really argue about. Yeah, I mean, and I will tell buyers all day, like, this doesn't matter as much as it does to the seller. And I've heard financial planners, both Kane Waters and otherwise, who have said, hey, actually, from a buyer's perspective, it's kind of helpful to have those write-offs further down the line. Because when you first buy a business, you have a lot of deductions and write-offs. And so from a cash flow perspective, we need those down the road. And so that's okay, right? I mean, and clearly, neither Charles or I are not saying, hey, if it's 50-50, to accept that just because it's better, right? Um, or that there's write-offs down the road, or you're getting 100%, there's a reasonable test, right? Like, so if you have a practice that has brand new equipment and everything's sparkly new, you can't say that 95% of it's goodwill, right? We do have to have like a CPA sign off on these things. So when we put forth letter of intents, we're always going to have suggestions of what is reasonable, but we're always going to have to verify those things as we get further down yeah, the transition so road. Let's say I, I, there's a practice I know about that the doctor did all this finish out. I mean, five brand new ADEC chairs, cone beam, tarot scanners, fill in the blank and just recently was diagnosed with something that is causing him to go into disability. 
Well, now all of a sudden we're going to sell that practice. The doctor's still there, still going to be able to pass on that goodwill, but it's one of those things now from a reasonable test. I can't just, hey, the buyers and sellers have agreed to a 95% goodwill, 5% tangible assets when there's literally $300,000 of equipment and shares and you know finish out that we just can't do that. So there is this reasonable test that we have to actually look at for sure. 100%. So we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I do before we jump into some questions that we often get, I want to jump into like what is considered goodwill and kind of why these things would be considered goodwill. So if we look at just like kind of the pure definition, which you can kind of Google this and find other various words of this, but it's an intangible asset consisting of the excess earning power of the business. Okay, well, what does that mean? If I own a dental practice, I can own a dental practice and it can make zero money or I can own a dental practice and it can make lots of money, right? And so my ability ability via who I am, what my skills are, how many patients I acquire, the processes I put in place, the staff that I train, the social media, the brand that I develop, all of those things then help me create more profit and more revenue for my business. So when I go to sell it, it's more profitable and therefore it has an intangible value beyond the assets that sit in the room that the patients sit on in the instruments I use. And so oftentimes it is a miscellaneous category. So if you have a letter of intent or you have a purchase agreement, there's going to be like a list of included assets. It will say goodwill, but then it will also say all of these other pieces that are considered kind of that intangible. Social media accounts, phone numbers. Think about this. If you own a practice and they have basically used the same number forever, patients know it. And now when I buy this practice, the phone number is not included. How are they reaching me? How are they calling my practice? How are they scheduling? Do they think that I now I just don't exist? A website, a practice that has a, a website and a big social media presence clearly has an aspect of goodwill. A practice that's named, I don't know, Smile More versus Dr. John Smith DDS is going to have more goodwill and tangible value because it's attached to the practice in general versus maybe a person. Where the practice is, the processes they put in place, right? Can I input a new team member and everything kind of works regardless of if I have kind of turnover there? And then clearly the ongoing relationship that you have with your patients and the ongoing relationship you have with your staff and the transition of that, right? So you can have goodwill and you can transition it, which makes it more valuable. Or you can have goodwill and not have a transition, which can sometimes deplete the value of that goodwill. So it's important to understand those are all things. And if you don't get one of those things or they don't exist, it doesn't mean that goodwill doesn't exist or that you should get a huge discount. It just means how does that one factor interplay with the overall practice operations and what risk does that pose to you in being able to be successful? Christy, these sound like really good things that would be included in an acquisition purchase agreement. They absolutely should be. I mean, it's almost like you've done this before. Just a couple times. Yeah, these, these are really good things. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, I have had in-depth conversations about all of these yes. things. And it's not, you're right, it's not something we talk about in the beginning. It's what we talk about when we get into the minutia of legal document and like, oh, what am I actually buying? And, exactly. Oh, you're not giving me the social media account and your 500 reviews? Yeah. Those things are important. Yeah. Again, uh, buyers and sellers are never looking this far into the weeds or just thinking, do I like the buyer? Do I like the seller? What does it do collection-wise? Can I do the work? Okay, yeah, this makes sense. But, oh, there's more to this? Oh, yeah. And, like, if you think about it, I mean, how many practices do we look at? That It's like johnsmithdentistry.com. Okay, well, I can't actually buy your name. Mm -hmm. You know, like I can use it. But as a seller, I am not expected to sell my name. And as a buyer, I probably don't want to practice long term that has someone else's name on it. So what we do is we say you have the use of it, right? Like you don't always have to sell some of these things, but you have to provide the use and the transition of it. So 
website example, johnsmithdds.com. We're going to allow a buyer to use it, and then we're going to allow them to redirect to another site that they create. And then that shift of how successful you are kind of goes to the buyer of like, how do you now take that goodwill and harness it to create your own brand and product? Typically in that example, anywhere between that 12 to 18 months, just allow yourself to build that site and allow yourself to build that relationship with all those recall patients. So that's exactly right. Yeah. So I'd love your opinion on this. When is goodwill worth more and when is it worth less? Like give us some examples of more and less. So step one for goodwill to exist, the doctor needs to be alive, okay? They need to be alive, blood flowing, that is step one. They'd be well known. They could, you know, grew up in this town of 4,000 people. They're a third generation dentist. Everybody in the community and county They're all coming in for this name. It could be, as you mentioned, not necessarily the doctor's name, but some type of brand name. And so being in the DFW marketplace there, where my wife used to live out in Murphy, it's Smiles of Murphy. Everybody knows Smiles (laughs) of Murphy. It's just a good name. And she was kind of first in, and her practice is just incredible. You would think about, you know, even the branding and marketing. You would think about, you know, there's a lot of, let's say, from a social media standpoint or, you know, old school billboards, something that just everybody knows this practice, lots of active patients. It's just big. That's an example of, man, this is definitely the practice that we want. You know, something that is just very strong in nature that you're like, this practice is going to be really, really well. Yep. And I think to understanding that clearly the seller being there alive isn't really important. There are times when if you are a buyer and you are buying a practice from a seller who has passed away or has had to step back unexpectedly and maybe can't be there to help transition, goodwill exists for a period of time and it's a curve, right? It starts going down and down and down and certain things can help support the goodwill that is there that exists, right? Like maybe you have an associate doctor that's there who is helping continue to see patients and it's a brand and the seller doctor was really important, but we have associates there, the production is continuing, the patients are continuing. Well, then you've shown that there's a portion of the goodwill that's related to the practice and not the doctor, right? Right. There's also, you mentioned kind of multi-generational. If it's a name that's very well known, that can mean a lot of goodwill. On the flip side, it could also mean that there's maybe some risk. If someone who's unknown to the area comes in, is that going to maybe cause, right? So some of these goodwill factors we're having to balance with the risk that a particular buyer has or sees in the transition that they may not value that as much. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means you as a buyer, that might not be the right practice or it may not be the right time or it just may not be the right person. Right. So just wanted to caveat there that there because there's so many intricacies that can go in with that. It's hard to find where the goodwill doesn't exist. These are very rare occasions. Like you said, even when the doctor does pass away, because this is reality, this does happen. The first, I call it less than 90 days, I think the goodwill is still there. This is where the family uh, and the team is maybe doing a joint letter to all of the patients. Mm-hmm. and. And maybe we are actually having the team spend more time and getting some of those uh, reactivated patients that, you know, we had to cancel for the first couple of months. But where I probably would draw the line where there's issues, this is the negative publicity stunt. You know, this is where something happened. You know, the, we probably got arrested. Oh, you know, yeah. There's something in the media news or something about what happened in the doctor. Yeah. Maybe now the practice has been shut down north of 120, 180 days for whatever reason. Yeah, I've got some issues there. And certainly we're not just talking about what the dollar amount in goodwill. We're talking the value of this business Mm -hmm. has significantly dropped. We're not talking some, it was doing a million. 
now it's only doing 50000 a month. It's not necessarily, you know, let's argue about the goodwill and asset allocation. It's probably just arguing over the value Correct. itself, right? Yep. So you don't see that very often. Dentists are pretty straight-laced people, hands 10 and 2, follow the rules. So for the most part, you don't really see anything that is causing this negative. It's, it's usually, again, I think just some sometimes either accountants or lawyers or I'm not really sure what causes these people to go back and forth and arguing over. I think the goodwill is 85 or 82 or 81, but we've been in the middle of this and we're just like scratching our heads. Can you believe this crap? We we got this whole way and now we're down to this. And I think it's important like on that function of, okay, if the practice is down, then the goodwill is naturally down. If you think about how we come up with that value, right? If you use your million dollar example and it's 80, 20 and we have 20% that's assigned to the tangible assets, well, that's 800,000 of goodwill. Well, if now the value of the practice is only 700, that equipment and tangible is still worth 200, right? Right. So the, the profitability and the ability for that machine to keep running, right, that excess earning power goes down if the goodwill goes down in any shape, fashion, or form. Yep. And again, your ability as a buyer to then determine if it's risk, opportunity, what am I paying? That's kind of what you have to make as a buyer. You have to make that decision based on the facts you have. And it's going to be unique in every situation. Right, right. So let's talk about transitioning goodwill. What should sellers expect to do that is reasonable? What should buyers know is unreasonable that they should not ask for? And if you have a seller who can't work back, they're there, but they can't work back or don't want to work back for whatever reason, like what does that mean in terms of goodwill? So let's start with seller. You know, if you're a seller listening, what can we expect of them to do to transition goodwill? Well, how about this? I'll take the positive. You be the negative. Ooh, okay. okay. All right. Like See, so you, you tell like me because you're you're always in the clothes and dealing with all the crap. Okay. So I'll start with what I've you know envisioned, and then you tell me the <laughs> crap that really goes down. Okay. So my perfect world is the buyer and seller. They love each other. They're they're coming up with maybe the buyer and the seller. They're working back and forth on this perfectly written letter that's going out to the patient. So the two of them are signing off on that. You know, maybe the two of them are strategizing on just even how the phone is now answered with Loretto and Ratcliffe dentistry versus just the Ratcliffe dentistry. You know, letting the patients know here is when they're asking, I want to, you know, reschedule with Dr. Ratcliffe. You let them know that we're super excited that Dr. found Dr. Loretto. And then there's just, I don't like scripts. I like there to be just a standard of what we're looking for mm-hmm. and then let that front desk basically be able to speak from their heart about, you know, this new doctor. But, you know, I want in all our communication on the phone, all of our communication, chair side, all the communication that's being written is there needs to be the strong words of blessed and thankful and lucky, hell, prayed for. You know, we have interviewed a lot of different people about who this perfect person is and we found them. This is the story that we are looking for, again, at all three methods. The marketing pieces that are going out from a letter, it could be, you know, on the website that just gets updated immediately about this new doctor and maybe have that letter, that communication from the senior doctor, certainly in the phones and certainly chairside. This is a very thoughtful process. And heck, if you need help on the writing of it, the scripting of it, if you need help on the leadership of how this is delivered internally in the practice, this is areas where even a consultant can help in that process. So this is my perfect write it out, envision, tell two doctors, and they implement it. I'm super happy. Yeah. The reality is that doesn't always happen. This is kind of a last minute thing. So they really haven't thought that through, especially on quick transitions. 
60 days to close. This is very last minute. Yeah. Tell us about some of these expectations that you're thinking from a buyer's perspective, and they're like, I'd want this and I want this. Tell us some of the horror stores or or just something where you're like, this is not realistic. Yeah. If you're listening and you're about to go into this, I think one of the perspectives that we can give that some, if you're a seller like broker might not be able to give you is that we work with buyers, right? And we work on both sides, right? Often not on the same time, but like we work with sellers and we work with buyers. A lot of brokers and people who help list practices or help sellers do this don't work with buyers too, right? Like that is a less available service. And I think what that does is it allows us to see what if the shoe was on the other foot? And that's what we always try to implement in our engagements is like, if I am working for the seller, I am, I represent you, right? And I am always going to try to win for what you are, but I'm also going to look. And if you're asking for something that if I'm on the opposite side of the table is completely unreasonable or unfair or would work, I'm going to tell you that as a seller, right? I'm going to say like, Hey, like I hear you, but like, this is why this is going to be a problem because the goal at the end of the day is for you both to come to the table and have a successful transition and you both to kind of get what you want within reason and compromise and like be fair and reasonable. And we always tell people do not engage us if you don't want to be fair and reasonable because that's just who we are. And so for this piece, We've had to have many a conversation with buyers and it's oftentimes because of a lack of experience, not because of a, like an ill will or a mean thing, but where buyers say, well, I think to transition this goodwill that this seller needs to work for me for a month unpaid, like they need to be in the office every day. They need to work. I mean, why would I pay them? Like they need to shake every hand of the patient. I would actually like for them to be here for a whole recall cycle four days a week. And I, I have to like pause and be like, okay, hear you totally understand. But would you do that? Would you work right. for free? Just coming in every day, just shaking hands like one, how boring would that probably be after a few months, right? Of like not actually a few days. Yeah. A few days of like not using your hands and not being in charge. And like, think about that from a seller's perspective. And we've also had people say, Hey, I want you to call every active patient and talk to them individually. That's a sign of someone who has not actually owned a business and talked to thousands of patients regularly. And it's also not valuing the practice and the employees and the staff that also have those relationships. Right. right. And so I think that as you, if you're a buyer listening to this, there are things you can expect if they're to referral based business, you can say, Hey, for the top 10 referrals, I want you to call them. I want you to schedule a dinner with me and you, and I'll pay for the dinner, but I want you there. Like those are reasonable things Absolutely. to ask for certain types of practices that are referral based. But if I'm going in and buying a super great practice that has a great recall and it's a great brand, I'm not asking the doctor to be there for six months unpaid and call every active patient himself. Right. So like you have to be reasonable and understand that you're buying a practice in the goodwill doesn't fully often live in that doctor. It certainly can be more heavy weighted doctor than practice, but you're buying the goodwill of the practice. And the goal is how do I transition that? Yeah. Comments here is, look, you're a young doctor and you're taking over maybe this established doctor. I'll be honest with you, you kind of want them out of the way. You're not going to want the older guy or gal sitting over your shoulder because mm -hmm. the patient's like, what's going on here? Is this like a training exercise? Hope it works out. <laughs> you know, like, what are we doing? So yeah, there needs to be certainly the goodwill that's there and in the inductions, things like that. But you don't want them literally chair side while this is going down. No. It, it just, you know, and the other thing too is the expectation for it, that's crazy. And then, it, well, what if I paid them? Pay them for what? You can do it, pay them a per diem. Can you afford them? Maybe you can't mm -hmm. afford them. So I like it when they're there. Don't get me wrong. And a smaller practice, maybe it's one or two days a week. And a bigger practice when I can't do all of the work as a buyer, 
absolutely I need them. You know, mm-hmm. you always say, do as much as you can, whatever you can't do, certainly want to employ that doctor back in. And I 100% agree with you. When do you want something in writing like super important? A periodontal practice that's going through a transition. Five senior doctors, you got a 65-year-old male guy and five 60-year-old male referral sources that are sending 80% of the business. Those dinners are number one. You know, mm-hmm. the, that transition and maybe in that example, having that period on stay there, going through a year of the curriculum and the study club or something like that on all those handoffs, that is critical. So depending on the type of practice that you're in, you know, that's where you'd want to think about GP practices. I'm not quite as concerned. One last comment about all of this as far as being fair. I've said this many times on, on many phone calls. The part I love about having this podcast, there's a record, there's a history of, you know, over 200,000 plays and almost 100 episodes of us talking. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll get a buyer or a seller say, well, how do I know? Like, let's say the buyer is hiring us, but I still want to talk to the seller. How do I know you're not just representing them? Well, my response to who's ever asking that question is, do me a favor, listen to some of the podcasts. If you hear one of us sound like we are one-sided, let me know. If you hear anything that we've ever said that obviously is recorded, and it now is the opposite of what you're hearing, mm-hmm. doesn't sound like, well, hey, you quoted on four years ago, episode 21, that this would be not fair. Now, all of a sudden, it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. This is what I love about having us being recorded, because it does allow for both buyers and sellers, when we do work in those dual consulting roles, to listen and say, Yeah, it sounds like it's reasonable because that's what's going to ultimately get us to the close. I'm not going to sit there and argue about, do you think your practice is worth 110% when it's not? I'm not going to sit there and argue about 95% and 5% goodwill and that's because you feel this. That's like, we're not a fit. You know, it's just like, let's move on to something else. So, you know, this is such a small little detail. And even when we were talking pre-recording this and this was the the topic, I was like, what the heck are we going to talk about for 30 minutes just on goodwill? And now I think we're, we're over time already. So it, it's, yeah. it's cool to really think about something this small, but how important it is to the deal. Yeah. And I think too, like when we say like, hey, don't hurt the goodwill, don't harm the goodwill by focusing on this or this, like what we're saying is that there is a level that the seller needs to be responsible for helping you transition what they have built into this practice. And they need to want to do that to do it the right way. I think personally, they can contractually be obligated and that's fine, but no one likes to be forced to do anything that they don't want to do. And I think that if you're focusing on the minuscule things or you're not putting yourself in the other person's shoes as a buyer, it can hurt the goodwill. Now, I'm not saying do not stand up for yourself or just, you know, let the seller kind of steamroll you. But what I'm saying is think big picture about what we're talking about, how you're communicating. In the world of text and email, let's just pause and let's just not respond immediately. Let's give ourselves some time to calm down before we shoot off texts and emails. And that goes on both sides of, of the coin there. But like from a goodwill perspective, we need the seller to want to help transition and make the buyer successful. The buyer needs that relationship. And so we really need to be cautious of how we're communicating, what we're arguing over and keeping the global picture in mind, which is like we want to successfully transfer this relationship of patients and staff and practice. One last thing. This is the don't mess it up. The million dollar (laughs) practice. It's the $800,000 price. It's the 80-20 goodwill, intangible, tangible combination. It's going to make $500,000 at the 50% overhead. Remember, all of a sudden this thing goes in your mind sideways because we're trying to change the allocation from 80 to 85 last minute. You know, he or she wants 
32% versus 30% to work back. They want to work three days versus two days. You know, the rent went from 4,200 to 4,600 last minute. Take the step back, take a big breath, take a pause, and just say, does this deal still make sense? And if it is the most financial sense, it's what you want to do. Again, let's take the pause before we wreck this deal and reevaluate it without the emotion and say, okay, I'm going to concede to this. And again, typically, if, if I'm going to give a little bit, I may take a little bit, but sometimes I'm just going to give and give when, when the deal is absolutely incredible. And that example, yep. the 50% overhead, the million dollar practice with a reasonable price is an incredible deal that we're just not going to mess it up. Yep, 100%. Well, I think we've covered the gamut. Joellen will write up a little something here. If you have questions, I mean, I think like anything, like any other episode, Goodwill is one of those pieces. It's very practice transition, buyer-seller dependent, and how best to do that and how best to not do that, I think, is really important. And so as you approach your transition, Goodwill is something you need to be thinking about, just like the lease and just like the price and just like your plan from an operational and accounting standpoint. It's a component. We don't want it to get lost but we don't want it to become the only thing that we're talking about either, especially that allocation piece. And so if you need help transitioning, if you're a seller considering, if you want to talk about how this impacts your transition, or if you're a buyer who's about to go through this, you know, hopefully where to find us by now. So, all right, team, that's all we have for today. Thank you for joining us on episode 94 of Transition Talk, Charles Loretto. Well, I just want you to know that the goodwill that you're doing with your daughter... (laughs) Going through cheerleading <laughs> will pay off. Now, it may not pay off until she's 25 or 30, having going through her own experiences of being a mother, but your goodwill <laughs> is going to pay off, girlfriend. Oh, makes me feel so much better. <laughs> As always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, friends. See you guys. 